a fitting song before this message. Because there are things that we will see, there are perspectives that we have now that we cannot see the fullness of what God is doing and will do in the future. And so we have to trust him because his ways are not our own. And that's a hard reality for us to grasp. But we're going to pray right now, and I ask you to join me in prayer as we ask God to help us to see that he is worthy always of our trust. So pray with me together. Lord Jesus, I do pray right now that our hearts would be enlivened again to the reality of your goodness. Lord, I know that there is difficulty. There are pains, there are frustrations, there are things that happen this week and actually will happen this week that will burden us. Lord, some have been dealing with things for years. Lord, and they're on the brink of wondering if you still are even there. Lord Jesus, strengthen us, I pray. Lord, use my words. Use your word in a mighty and powerful way in our hearts. Lord, proclaim truth. Lord, may we see it, please. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. And turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. I really have been appreciating the message series, been benefiting from hearing them. If you were here last week, Todd kind of gave a spoiler at the end of his message to talk about what we were talking about. It's kind of like the Marvel movies mid-credit scene that kind of hints the next thing coming in the future. Uh, except it wasn't really that encouraging. It was, hey, by the way, all these things that you're going to be doing, you're going to have to do it without grumbling or complaining. And I'm sure all of you are like, oh, what? We got to come back next week and talk about not grumbling and complaining. As I think of what Paul is about to say to us, I was wrestling over this because Todd just mentioned, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You would think that one of the ways that he would say that is perhaps read your Bible more, or maybe even pray more, or go to church more, or maybe even serve more or give sacrificially more, but he doesn't do any of those things. He tells us not to grumble and complain, because he knows that all of those other things that I just listed are expressions of your faith. Reading your Bible, praying more, going to church, giving time and money sacrificially, those are expressions of something that is in your heart. They're expressions of faith and faith in God. And let me say that until Christ returns, I would say that faith in God is the most important thing that we have to God. The Bible recounts that our faith is more precious than gold. Think of that. More precious to God than gold. It also says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And faith is the means by which we have all that God has done for us. We've been saved by grace through faith. So faith is necessary for us to receive the very things that God has done for us. And yet we live confident, hopefully, in what God says or who God says that he is. And so we walk by faith. We keep in step with the Spirit and live by faith. And that's really the point of this sermon, so I want to give you a spoiler right at the beginning. This is what the message is about. It is about holding fast to Christ by faith, because he is worthy of your trust. We're holding fast to Christ by faith because he's worthy of our trust. But as we look at this passage in Philippians 2, there's first a strong warning 
for your faith. There's a warning against things that would deter from faith. And then he gives an even greater encouragement for our faith. And so read with me Philippians 2, starting in verse 14, going to verse 18. He says this. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So you see in verse 14, he starts off with dangers to faith. And he lists two things. This is a negative. He says, do all things without grumbling or questioning. Some of you might have disputing or arguing or complaining. But he says, do all things without grumbling or arguing. Notice he says, do all things. What is he talking about there? Yes, he's talking about working out your own salvation. He just talked about it. So he's saying, okay, as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, do that without grumbling and complaining. But he also mentioned that you and I are to have the same mindset, that you and I are to live in humility towards one another, thinking of others more important than ourselves. Do that without grumbling or arguing. And even before that, he tells us that you and I are to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Not looking at one another as your opponents, but your actual opponents. So do that without grumbling or questioning. Every part of the Christian life is to be done without arguing or grumbling about this. And so let's define grumbling and arguing. Grumbling is expressed discontent. Expressed discontent. So you tell people that you are not satisfied. You have the conclusion that you are not being cared for and you are actually being neglected. That's grumbling. But it's expressing it. All of us grumble. I noticed I didn't get an amen. So apparently, I, maybe you guys don't. All of us grumble. Don't say amen because I know you, now you know that it's true. We grumble against people and circumstances typically. People and circumstances. It is always against things that we are not in direct control of. So when we feel like we don't have control and we want control... We grumble. We're not satisfied with these things. One example, Disney Plus came out with a show, The Mandalorian. I am discontent with the amount of episodes that is available to watch on The Mandalorian. I have expressed grumbling about that fact. And I'm going to express my discontent and my satisfaction because I believe that I deserve better. And so we grumble and complain Because we think that we deserve better circumstances than we're actually having in that time. Think about your job. You grumble against your job. You grumble against your boss or your coworker or the responsibilities that you are given. You grumble against your spouse if you're married because they don't do the things that you expect them to do. And so therefore you try to make them do these things. Your family, perhaps your parents, kids, you try to get your parents to let you do what you want to do and you grumble against them or your kids your kids just defy you and so you grumble against your kids how about your church 
Maybe you're here and you grumble because you don't think that people care about you here. You're dissatisfied with the amount of care that you are receiving. And how many of us have grumbled against our health, our circumstances? We have weakness. We have sickness. We have pain. And these circumstances we are in are often difficult and often even prolonged. The longer they are, the more opportunity we have to grumble about those things. And that's why Paul starts here. Because when we grumble, there's a battle in our hearts. There's a battle in our hearts. Because all of us have expectations. Can we just admit all of us have expectations of what our life is going to be like? We all, we all do. We all believe we're going to live a certain amount of time. All my kids think I'm going to live to be 100 years old. I don't want to live to be 100 years old. I've seen 100-year-old people. It's ugly. I don't want to be 100 years old. We also have expectations of our jobs. We have expectations of pay with that job. We have expectations of having a home and buying a house and having a spouse and family and what our kids are going to be like and our, and our wife or our husband is going to be like. We all have expectations of what that will be. And then we have a certain type of outcome, perhaps. Maybe we're going to travel or retire. We have expectations of the end. And then we look back and we feel like we've lived a fulfilled and happy life. We all imagine the future. Why is it, though, that we typically think of the future in terms of our ease and comfort in this life? Why is that always in the mix of things? We always think of those things that are familiar or certain. We want those things. And these things, let's be honest, these things become gods to us. How do I know? Because when they're not there, we grumble and argue. If anyone or anything hinders this from happening, you better believe that they're going to hear about it from me. I don't like it when things are unknown. I don't like it when I have to wait over a prolonged period of time in uncertainty. I don't like that at all. And grumbling expresses a heart that is idolatry. We have to admit that. We have to admit that. That's why he says you can't do it with grumbling or arguing because it expresses a lack of trust. It is unbelief unbelief. So think of it like this. You stop believing that other people care about you, except yourself. And so who do you start trusting? You start trusting yourself. And it amazes me how so easily we are able to trust ourselves, and yet we find so many faults of untrustworthiness in other people. And that's grumbling. A conclusion that I am being neglected or not cared for, and therefore I'm going to tell you about it. The next one is really disputing or arguing. It's as if you and I own all the rights to caring. We start thinking that we are right and we know best. The word actually means to just reason with thoroughness and completeness. That's what the word means. You'd say, well, that's not, that's not bad. Why is that bad? Well, here's the problem. If you've already come to the conclusion that nobody else cares for you, You're the only one who cares for yourself. You're the only one to be trusted. Therefore, I start making my demands known to you, and I expect you to change. Because I know what's best. I don't trust you, so your input means very little to me. I trust myself, and I know exactly what I want, and therefore, I am going to move in that direction. And God help you if you get in my way of getting what I want. Because I have already been convinced that it's best, and I'm going to get it. And so you start demanding those people. Again, you don't have control, 
and you're demanding things to be back in your control because that gives you comfort and ease. That's what you want. And so you and I make a solution to get it back. Think about today. Okay, just a simple example. You all have expectations for just today. You have expectations of what it's going to look like for you to go home, maybe what you're going to do for lunch, what you're going to do this afternoon, what you're going to do this evening. You have expectations. They're unspoken. They're just in your mind. What is going to happen when some of those expectations don't match? Most of the time, you will grumble and you will argue. And you will try to get the very thing that you want to have happen. Men, you do it every time you come home from work. Ladies, you do it every time your husband comes home from work, if you're married. You guys have expectations. They don't match. And you're now grumbling and complaining against one another. And I think those are the things that are hard. Weekends are even the hardest. Why? Because you have more opinions of people. You're usually there as a family. Now you've got more opinions of people. It's easier when you're by yourself. It's only your opinion. But can you see why Paul starts here? Philippi is grumbling against one another. We just talked about it at the first part of chapter 2. He says, stop doing things out of selfish ambition and rivalry and consider other people more important than yourself. Listen, that's not easy. It wasn't easy for them. It's not easy for us. Especially since they had opponents. They had people who were against them. They had people who were actively against them as a church. And our circumstances are not always going to be marshmallows and gumdrops. They're not. It's going to be difficult to follow Christ. It's going to be difficult to be in relationship with one another. And so just like they are, we are tempted to distrust one another and to distrust God. And think to ourselves, this isn't worth it. And in this example, Paul thinks back to Israel. I want you to think that word grumbling and arguing, and he will do this again in the next verse. But he talks about an example of the Israelites. It's found in Exodus 17. I want you to turn there with me, Exodus 17. So you got two, the first two books of the Bible, Genesis and Exodus. Exodus 17. I'm assuming since I don't hear page turnings, you guys are all doing it electronically. Fantastic. But Exodus 17. Exodus 17. This is after the Exodus event. So think of what happened in the Exodus. They're saved by God giving plagues to the nation of Egypt. And he saves them out of there and then leads them across the Red Sea, splits the waters, brings them out. They're now in a wilderness. In chapter 16, they're grumbling for bread. He gives them manna. Exodus 17, he gives them water from the rock. But I want to show you there's grumbling and complaining in this passage. So look at it. Starting in verse 1, he says, all the, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped out Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. That word quarreled is the same one as arguing, as the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Arguing. Quarreled. They quarreled with him, said, give us water to drink. There's the demand. But the people, well, sorry, and Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Notice the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. 
So the grumbling came of a conclusion that God didn't actually care for them. You don't care the fact that you brought us out here. We have no water to drink. What's going to happen to us, to our kids, and our livestock? You don't care about us, so I'm grumbling against you. The conclusion that they come to leads them to a demand. Give us water to drink. It came to such a degree that they were going to stone Moses. That's grumbling and arguing. And notice that Moses says, you are doing this against God. You're doing this against God. Note the end of the section there in verse uh, 7. So Moses did this inside of the elders of Israel. He split the rock. They got water. But then in verse 7, he says, He called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? In other words, does the Lord even care about us? Does the Lord care about us? Here's the way that he's going to show us that he cares about us, is if he does exactly what we want. We want water, God. Are you here? Are you, do you care? Give us water. That's what they said. These Israelites who saw God do these amazing things for them, now we're questioning, God, do you even care about us? It seems ridiculous. That whole generation died in unbelief in the wilderness. But think of ourselves. Grumbling and arguing comes to the conclusion that God is not worthy to be trusted, so I will be in control. I will be in control. I can trust myself. And faith remembers God rightly. Faith sees him in truth, not according to our circumstances. God has revealed himself. The circumstances don't change the revelation of God. But so often we want it to and think it does. And so as Paul reminds them, he tells them again, live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, you have opponents. Yes, it's hard. But God has saved you. You have encouragement in Christ. God is at work in you. Don't grumble and argue against him. And he says, when you don't do this, here's what's going to happen. And so next he gives us some results of faith. Some results that happen when you and I do not grumble or argue. One of the reasons that God has saved us, he's going to show us, is that you and I would evidence and proclaim to the world the glory and worth of God. That you and I would evidence through our life how we live and proclaim through our mouth the fact that God is glorious and worthy of praise. All of these things that we're going to look at on 15 are relationship-based. The first two, it says that you sow that. So do all things without grumbling or questioning. Why? So that you may be blameless and innocent. Blameless and innocent. To show you this one, I have Psalm 19, 12 through 14 on the screen. It says this, who can discern their own errors? In other words, who, who understands their own hidden faults? Who can see those things? Not many of us do. We think we're doing pretty well. This is what David prays, though. He says, Lord, keep your servant from willful sins. So not only forgive my hidden faults, the things that I don't know, but keep me from willful sins. Some of you might have presumptuous. The idea there is a high-handed sin against God. God, I don't care. It was like the Israelites. God, do you even care? Are you among us? He says, Lord, keep your servant also from those things. May they not rule over me. May that not be my mindset. And then he says, then I will be blameless. And I will be innocent of great transgression. But notice now what he prays. 
May the words of my mouth, may there not be arguing. The meditation of my heart, may there not be grumbling. Let those things that naturally happen during my day, let that be pleasing in your sight. Let that be actually true of who you are. Lord, you are my rock and you are my redeemer. Notice he focuses his heart again on who God is. He says, may the words of my mouth, the expression of you, and the meditation of my heart, my thoughts of you, let those things be pleasing in your sight. That's what it means to be blameless and innocent. The next one he says is children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Children naturally trust their parents. Parents lose trust. Children naturally trust their parents. And so he says that you are children of God without blemish, meaning you would not bring something or that you would not see God as withholding something that is not trustworthy of him. That you would say, no, God is only giving me good things and he's giving me what is best for me. Kids naturally do that. Naturally do that. And then he describes the generation of a crooked and twisted generation. This is the world we live in. This is the world we live in. Crooked and twisted, simple. It's taking something straight, bending it, and then absolutely contorting it is the next one. So it's something true is twisted or crooked and now twisted. And he bends it. He says that's what they do with God. They bend and twist the truth of God. They take something straight and bending it. This is again shown in Deuteronomy 32. I'll put it up on the screen for you. He says this. This is what Moses does. Moses tells them, this is a part of a song. Deuteronomy 32 is a song that all the Israelites were to know throughout the rest of their generations. Deuteronomy 32. And this is what Moses writes. He says, the rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness, without iniquity. Just and upright is he. But notice what the Israelites have done. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. That's exactly what he says. He says, you and I are not to be like that. What did they do, though? He says, do you repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? What does he mean by dealing corruptly with them? Well, I didn't put it on the screen, but if you keep reading in Deuteronomy 32, it says that they made him jealous with their foreign gods. They angered him with their detestable idols. It says, you deserted, you left the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. In other words, they repaid him. How did you repay him? By blaming him and testing him and accusing him of things that he wasn't doing. You don't care about us, God. You brought us out here to die. That's dealing corruptly with the one whose way is perfect. Let me tell you, you can't find any cause of grumbling and arguing against someone who's perfect, can you? You can't find any reason to grumble and argue against anybody whose ways are all justice, faithful, without iniquity, just and upright as he. That doesn't describe any of us. Yet the one during circumstances who declares that of himself, that's the one that we doubt in times of difficulty. Maybe our perspectives are wrong. Because they're certainly not his. We just sang that. Your ways are not my ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts, says the Lord. My ways are way higher than your ways, and my thoughts are way higher than your thoughts. But grumbling and arguing is, again, from the heart of idolatry. God, you are not sufficient for me. You're not trustworthy. You're not good. I'm, you're, you're not in control. Therefore, I have to get rid of you, and I'm going to take it myself. It's mine. 
It is mine. Let me tell you, this is not the heart of the child of God, but this does declare what the normal process in the world is. Do you have to go far to see grumbling and complaining, even against God and the world? You don't. He says, you're not like that. You can't be like that. That's the way of the people who don't know God. You know God. You know these things are true of him. Could you imagine if the believer received circumstances without grumbling and complaining, without grumbling or arguing against people or against God? He tells you exactly what it would look like. He says, among whom you shine as lights in the world if you don't grumble and complain. Think about the darkest night you've ever seen. And think about the brilliance of a star in that darkness. Or the brilliance of the moon when it's dark. You can see a lot when the moon is out. It's shocking, yet it's covered in darkness everywhere else. Can I just tell you that light is absolutely, unmistakably beautiful? Unmistakably beautiful. Light invites more light. Darkness hates light. Hates it. We cannot look like darkness when we are actually light. A very famous passage of Jesus, Matthew 5, says this. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, he says, let your line shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's such a nice verse. Look, though, in context of the previous verses. Look at verse 11. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He says, rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Right in between there, if you notice, verse 13 is missing. That's, you are the salt of the earth. It follows right after the fact that God promises to you that you will be given difficulty of reviling, of persecution, and uttering all kinds of evil falsely against you. He tells you to rejoice and be glad. Could you imagine how bright that shines in the midst of this generation? We hate being told that we can't do something. We hate being told that things are not going our way. Think about some of the news reports of people just, the pictures of people just yelling at others, just screaming at other people's faces. That's our culture. He says, that's not you. That can't be you. You're the light of the world. You are to shine. Look back with me at uh, Philippians 1.27 through 29. At the end of 27, he says, you are standing firm. So so think of it like this. Rejoice and be glad that you are striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then verse 28. You are not frightened in anything by your opponents. If you're rejoicing and being glad, like Jesus told us, we will not be frightened in anything by our opponents. He says this is a clear sign to them of their destruction. I love how he says a clear sign to them. What What is clear in the night sky? Light. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. When you are rejoicing and being glad and not grumbling against one another, yet you're striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, unmoved. Your enemy doesn't know what to do with it. All that evidences to them is that they're on the wrong side. They are getting ready for destruction. For you, it is a testimony that your salvation is coming. So rejoice and be glad. 
Because notice verse 29 in 1. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. I don't like that, but that's exactly what he says. It's been granted to you. It's a gift. You want to believe? Fantastic. Yes, Lord, we want to believe and trust in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. Great. Now you're also going to suffer for me. I don't like that present. I'd like to return that one, please. That's not a good one. Do you have a gift receipt for that, Jesus? If not, I just will leave that in the closet. That's what we do. We get rid of that. We hide that part. He's telling you that's exactly what's going to happen. That's exactly what you're expecting. But our expectations, again, overemphasize ease. Jesus himself, in the world you will have trouble. But I have overcome the world. So think of it like this. When you and I grumble and argue, the light of God's goodness is out. When we grumble and complain, the light of God's mercy, it's out. His love, it's out. His comfort, it's out. His grace, it's out. His power, it's out. The very worth of God is glorious. It's gone. That's what he's saying. You're not testifying to anything of greatness anymore. I look very small. But again, the difference between a child of God and the child of the world is massive. Because we as the children of God have someone to hold on to. And that's exactly what he says next. He says, listen, you have confidence in your faith. You have the ability to hold fast the word of life. That's the difference. You and I have someone to hold on to. We hold fast to the word of life. Notice I didn't say that we have something to hold on to, although that's true as well, but someone, someone to hold on to. My fear is that so often when I come to the Bible and when I've had conversations with people, we look at the Bible as full of truth but we want to be a culture that's right. We use it more in arguments and debates and other things like that. That's what we use the Bible for. It is not simply that we can be better at arguing or win debates. It is the truth for the sake of knowing and loving and enjoying and glorifying God. Because we're going to face great pain and difficulty and frustrations and things that cause us agony. Let me tell you, the comfort, the peace, and the strength that you get is not necessarily reciting facts Although those are true, it is facts for the purpose of pointing you to one who is there. I think of how many times when I've gone through difficulty, people have said to me, God has better things in store for you. That's true. But it's often of little comfort in those moments because I want to know in that moment that God cares for me. I want to know that God loves me. I want to know that God is still with me. I thought of an illustration of this idea of holding fast Venna, just over a year ago this past week, middle of the night, she woke up and she was unable to breathe. And my daughter Nora came in and told us this. And sure enough, there's Venna wheezing, like, <gasps> can't breathe. Callie, like a mother bear, grabbed her, flipped her upside down and just started pounding her back, thinking something was in there, trying to get it out. Eventually, we just called 911. We said, we don't, I have no idea what's happening. So here's a picture of her getting placed in a stretcher. Stretcher's way bigger than my two-year-old at the time, daughter. But she's looking at me the whole time. Eventually, we got into that ambulance over there, and we're now driving to the hospital. And I'm there in the front, and she's kind of over here on the stretcher, and I'm talking to the guy, and I'm just wondering what's happening. You know, as a dad, I want to know what's happening. I hear her whimpering. I realize I'm out of her sight. She can't see me. 
I come back over here. She sees me. And two arms go like this. I lean down. She grabs my neck. She pulls me to her. I mean like this. Like this. I am now in her side right here. Stuck there. Because she would not let me go. Let me tell you what she needed in that moment. I didn't have to explain to her, listen, honey, we're going to go to the hospital. They're going to give you some medicine. They're going to put a little breathing thing on you, and that's what's going to happen. And we're probably going to be able to go home, and you're going to be able to go sleep in your bed tonight. Isn't that great news? She didn't care. She wanted to know that I was there. She wanted to know that I was right there with her. You and I get it wrong. That's the heart of a child. We get it wrong when we become adults. We want answers. We want explanations. We don't want to trust God until he gives those to us. The heart of a child says, God, I want you. I just want you near me. I don't know what's going on. I don't really need to know what's going on. Are you there? Yes, you are. I'm going to hold on to you. That's why he says, hold fast the word of life. Because you're not going to grumble and complain when you actually want the one to whom you need. You need him. That is why he says you hold fast the word of life. But again, if you know God only as facts and you do not commune with him in prayer and joyful worship and you do not know his loving presence with you every day, all the right theology will mean almost nothing in times of difficulty. Because the weapon that you use against grumbling and complaining is confidence and joy in your God. He is for you, and he is with you as his child. And then he says this, and there's a warning here. He says, listen, hold fast to the word of life. Why? So that in the day of Christ, he says, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Why does he think that way? Run in vain, labor in vain? Because he says It's just the conclusion of what he said. He says, the person who grumbles and complains has no faith in God. If you have no faith in God, you will eventually fall away from God, and everything that he is doing would be in vain. I'm expressing concern for you. I'm, I'm there with you. I'm writing a letter to you. If you grumble and complain and you see God as less glorious than everything that I'm trying to tell you, then you will leave God, and everything that I've done for you, Philippi, is in vain. It's in vain. Now note this, we will grumble and complain. But when you and I grumble and complain, it doesn't make us leave God. It should make us go to God, have a change of our hearts and our mind, and then we turn and trust again and repent of our grumbling and complaining. But notice, he's running and laboring for them. Let me say this, church, this is not something that you and I do alone. We don't battle this alone. As he says, I'm running and laboring, I want you to think of people who have ran, run, who have run, and are laboring or labored in your life for your faith. Is there anybody that you can think of? Are there people in your life that God has brought into your life, whether you were a child, whether a teenager, growing up in college, or whatever you did as a young adult, now however old you are, there are people that God has brought into your life who ran and labored with you, and even for you. And he says, let me remind you, you're not doing this alone. You do this as a church family. And we see this over and over again in the Bible. Look at Hebrews 3. 
He warns them after giving an example, actually, of the Israelites. He says, see to it, brothers and sisters, none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. What are you and I to do? We're to encourage one another as long as it's called today so that none of us would be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And then he says this, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. Hold fast, hold firmly, encourage one another to do that. And then look at Hebrews 10. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. And then he says, let us consider then, in light of this, the faithfulness of God. Let us stir one another up to love and good works. Don't neglect to meet together. Because when you don't trust other people, you distance yourself from everybody. Grumbling and complaining also distances you relationally. And he says, and all the more. Come together as you see the day. Again, the day of Christ is what he's aiming for. So I will not run or labor in vain. Paul wants their faith to grow and to give them joy. And so he ends with the idea of joy of their faith. He ends with joy. Go figure. This is a book about joy and rejoicing. And he says this. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, he says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul has already stated in chapter 1, he says, listen, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Which one do I want? Do I want to stay here with you or go to be with Christ? For most of us, that's a no-brainer. You want to go to be with Christ. We don't want to stay around with everybody here. I'd rather be in glory than in non-glory. But he says this. He says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. I would like to leave, but to remain here is more necessary on your account. He says, I'm convinced of this. Therefore, I will remain and continue with you all. Then he says this, for your progress and joy in the faith. So for Paul, it's a win-win. I love that. With Paul, it's a win-win. Listen, if I die, I'm with Christ. If I'm alive, it's just watching your faith increase. And he says, I am willing to be poured out as a drink offering. I'm willing to die to see your faith increase. I'm willing to die to see your faith increase. How I respond and how I've been responding in the midst of this whole letter that I've written to you let it be a motivation for you to trust God. Let it be a reason for you to look at God as a person who loves you. Even though this is all happening to me, listen, I rejoice. Even if I'm to die, I would gladly die because it would mean that your faith would increase. He says, so be happy. And I rejoice with you that your faith is increasing. And then he says, likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me because when he dies, he's going to be with Christ. That's exactly what he wants. So even if I am to die, rejoice with me. Be glad with me because I would be with Christ. That's the end. So it's a win-win. If I stay here, I'm glad because I see your faith increasing. If I die, be glad for me because I'm with Christ. Amen. Is there anything that you and I could grumble and complain about when we have that sort of perspective? There's nothing for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. My faith will increase. I want to see your faith increase. I'm rejoicing in your faith increasing. If I die, I'm with Jesus. Amen. Now I want to end this message with some encouragement to point you to the person of God. What can you and I always trust? Because I don't want to be just 
negligent of the reality of pain. And so I want to look at some things that you can base your faith in God in. What can you hold fast to? And the first thing I want to say is that God wants to hear your frustration. That's comforting. God wants to hear your frustration. There's a gentleman from uh, Allendale, Michigan. His name is Michael Goff. He wrote an article called Trust God Through Your Tears. Trust God Through Your Tears. He has a son who was born five weeks premature. He had a rare genetic disorder with many obstacles. Some of them include low muscle tone, cognitive delays, immensely low metabolism resulting in extra weight gain to name a few. He talks in this article about how he was so frustrated and angry that he said this, How can this be? God, do you care? I've always consulted you, always. We've waited 10 years before we had our first child. We did it right, and this is what we get. What kind of life is my son going to have? Those are his thoughts. But then he says this. He says, in all our suffering, he says, we have two alternatives We can cry in sinful disdain over the work that God is doing in and through us, or we can lament deeply with hope in the joy that is set before us. He says, the weeping itself is not the issue. That is probably the most God-glorifying response. But then he says this, if our weeping comes simply from angered pride or the shattered shards of our sin nature, we've moved away from lamenting the way things are to resenting that things are not the way we wanted them to be. We move from lamenting, that's good, that's biblical, the way things are, lament over them, cry over them, weep over them, but don't let them become resenting God over the way that it's not. It's not the way you wanted it. Don't resent God for that. I love this because the idea of lament is all over the Psalms. Let me recommend three Psalms for you to give God your frustration. God has inspired complaints to himself. So if you think that God doesn't want to hear your frustrations. He's actually inspired books of the Bible that complain to God. Inspired complaints. Here, read this and complain to me because I'm telling you to complain to me. Okay? Psalm 142. Write down Psalm 142. He says, I pour out before him my complaint. Before him I tell my trouble. Write down Psalm 62. One of my favorite verses is found in Psalm 62. It's verse 8. He says, Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him. God is our refuge. Talk about a God who invites you to do this. And then as a reminder, Psalm 23. Psalm 23. I know many of you might know that. The Lord is our shepherd. Do not become over-familiar with Scripture, though. Think of the promise of his presence in the midst of anything. You are with me. Read that and be reminded again of God's goodness. The second thing is that God loves you always. God loves you always. Romans 8 is probably one of the more powerful chapters in the Bible. But I want to refresh your memory of some of the things that he says there. He says that you and I have been adopted as sons. And then he promises that there would be suffering. And he says, I consider that these things are not worth comparing them to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then a more famous passage that says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. But later on, he gives us the reason why we could trust that all things work together for good. He says to us in verse 32, 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, Jesus was not spared. We just read about it in Philippians 2. That Jesus didn't grasp hold of glory. He emptied himself and became a servant. He says that was God's plan and Jesus responded accordingly. If he didn't spare his own son for you, will he not also along with him graciously give you all things? All things? It's all yours. Yours in abundance. And then he comes to this conclusion. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He asks that question. But notice what he lists. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Notice these things. He says, shall tribulation, that's not a person, shall distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. In other words, God himself, when he brings these things, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. You think that God doesn't care about you when these things are brought into your life. You are wrong. Nothing, nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. He says, can these things separate us? He goes, no. In all these things, you and I are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then he says, I am sure that neither death nor life, angels, rulers, present, things to come, powers, height, depth, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us. Don't think your circumstances have somehow separated you from the love of God. So often we doubt, God, do you love me? He just tells you, nothing will separate you. Nothing. That will never change. And so finally, we see that God is the one who will hold us securely. God is the one who will hold you securely. Our perseverance in the faith is not simply left to us. We saw in Philippians 2 this last week, God is at work in you, both to will and to work. God is moving you forward. We saw earlier on in Philippians, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it over and over again. The Bible reminds us of God's working on our behalf. Jude 24, write down Jude 24. There's no chapters, so it's just Jude 24 and 25 also. But Jude 24, he says this, To him who is able, listen to this, to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. He's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. He says, to God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now, and forevermore. God has kept his people safe then. He's keeping them safe now. He will keep them safe to himself forevermore. Nothing in the world should separate our confidence in God. In conclusion, this struggle of faith is not new. As I was thinking about this, I asked Corey to sing a song, a specific one, and I want to give you why. This is why. Because the struggle of faith is not new, and so over the centuries, believers have struggled through walking by faith, and yet many have shared encouragement, and this is one of them, this song. This song came about by a young man in the early 1900s. His name was Robert Harkness. He was a musician who traveled with an evangelist and saw many people come to Christ, but then he saw these same people expressing fear and doubt not knowing if they could keep holding on to their faith. Concern for these and others like them, he wondered how he might encourage them to see God's ability to keep his people. So like any musician, he decided a song, song. 
He wrote to a friend of Charles Spurgeon named Ada Habersham, who was a hymn writer who was living in London. She was so inspired by his request to have a song like this that she wrote seven of them. Seven songs. One of them she entitled, When I Fear My Faith Will Fail. And Harkness wrote the original tune. Over a hundred years later, an American worship pastor in Washington, D.C. named Matt Merker was given Habersham's hymn, this hymn, by someone in the congregation during a trying season of his life. And he found fresh comfort and hope in these lyrics. He put new music to this hymn and he added a third verse. This hymn has now risen in prominence in America right now, reminding us again of God's goodness and power to hold us to himself. You might know this hymn as, He Will Hold Me Fast. And so before we sing it together, let's pray. Lord God, you are faithful. You are the one who will keep us and guard us against the evil one. So Lord, please, I ask that you would direct our hearts to your love and to the patience and endurance of Jesus Christ. To you be glory alone, Jesus. We love you. Amen.